Well, good morning again. If you missed it, again, my name is Prentice Park, uh, and I am uh, new around here as the executive director of ministry. Uh, and again, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be here and to teach God's word uh, this morning. And so uh, I get the privilege to continue our series uh, called Global Culture. Uh, and when I first started, which was only about a month ago, Pastor George asked me, he said, hey, Prentice, do you, do you want to preach soon? And I said, yeah, I'll take that opportunity. I said, all right, you're, you're, you're up for September 24 today. Uh, great, what is it about? Uh, it's about racism. Okay, so uh, have fun. But all that to say is I am thankful to, to Pastor George and the staff to give me this opportunity. Uh, but again, if I say something uh, that might be upsetting, you could always email me at pastorgeorge at upc.org. So, uh, and I'll get it, I'm sure. So all that to say is, hey, uh, our text is from Jeremiah today. Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, verse 4 uh, through nine, uh, and if you have uh, a Bible or a pew Bible, it's page 639, or you could read it on the screen. Uh, if you are able, would you please stand and we can read God's word together in one voice. Thus says the Lord of hosts, to Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters marriage. Your sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city, for I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the divine deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I did not send them, says the Lord. So word of the Lord, you may be seated. So I'll never forget uh, this moment when I was in third grade. Uh, my mom would spoil me and pack me lunch uh, for my class, for school. Uh, and I, I don't know if you might be able to resonate with this, but oftentimes in particularly the Korean culture, uh, the way that mothers or fathers say I love you is not necessarily by saying I love you, but asking a question. And the question is something like, did you eat? Are you hungry? Can I cook for you? And that is oftentimes a way that uh, particularly my mom uh, would show me that she loves me. And it's more than just about preparing food and quenching some kind of need uh, to, to quench this hunger for food. It was a way for one person to say, I love you. I'm going to spend time in the kitchen. I'm going to prepare this delicious meal for you to experience and so oftentimes my mom would make me creative foods for lunch. And I remember this one day, she packed me a lunch with, uh, with rice, 
with some Korean side dishes, uh, otherwise known uh, as panchan. And inside the side dishes were like spinach and uh, bean sprouts. And, and of course, you can't forget the Korean staple, kimchi, uh, along with some Korean barbecue and marinated beef. And, and so I would take it to, class, or to school, and during lunchtime, I would break it out. But I remember this one day, as soon as I opened up my lunch, opened up the lid, the first thing I hear from someone next to me is, ew. What is that? And then I hear, oh, that smells funny. Oh, that's weird. And I remember feeling really, really bad. And I was looking around and I felt like the kids were all eating the same thing. So I went home and I felt bad to my mom. And I said, mom, I know you spend this much time. I cannot take this to school anymore. And of course, she was heartbroken, and she would say, why not? And I, I told her that kids were making fun of me. And, and then she said, well, what do you want me to pack you for lunch then? And I said, I, I don't know what it is, but the kids are calling it bologna. <laughs> so can you make me bologna sandwiches instead? And so we went to the store, and we were looking at it, and I, don't, I didn't know what bologna was. To this day, I don't know what bologna is. And sadly, she was making me bologna sandwiches, so I don't feel, so I didn't feel like I was being left out or excluded. But the reality is this, at that moment in time, I realized that what I brought to the table, all of who I was, in my identity, my racial identity, my ethnic identity as a Korean American, my cultural identity as, again, being American and, and cultural, culturally Korean uh, at this time. My parents were newly immigrants to America, so they were still dabbling themselves and didn't know what the norm was. But at that moment, I realized that because of who I was and how I looked, I was being excluded. I was being felt and treated like I was not normal, like there was something wrong with me because of who I was, because of my race, my ethnicity, my culture. And, and, and what I know about this conversation is this, anytime, particularly in a church context, that whenever we talk about race or racism, uh, I sometimes get this feedback or this question of, Prince, why do we have to be so political? It can't, Prince, why can't we just talk about Jesus? Why do we have to talk about race and racism? And, and to that, I would respond like this. I would say, well, to talk about race and racism, it, it's not a political issue. It's not a trendy issue. It's not a tribal issue. Talking about racism is actually a kingdom of God issue. And it's a kingdom of God issue because when we look around, not only in the sanctuary, but in our neighborhoods, we see the diversity. We see people from different areas and worlds and countries and languages. That is the kind of diversity and beauty that God had, had planned for and desired from the very beginning of time. Again, the diversity that we see in our sanctuary, in our communities, when we see that, we become witnesses of God's creativity and God's beauty. 
And I love what it says here in Psalms 139. It says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In other words, if I had to sum up that Bible verse, I would sum it up like this. You are enough. And some of us, including myself, we need to hear that more often. And maybe whatever you bring to the table, you need to hear that today. That you are enough. And you are enough because God created you. God created me. God created us so fearfully and so wonderfully. And there's a word for this. It's a kind of a fancy Latin word called the imago Dei. And it translates as the image of God. The image of God, imago Dei. And that imago Dei and that image of God is in all of us. We all possess the imago Dei. And because we all possess the imago Dei, we can be sure that we are enough. And I would argue that the kingdom of God also calls us to have a bigger and better imagination for what the Imago Dei means, not only within ourselves, but for the rest of our world and our communities, and particularly our church. But as we've seen, the the image of God, the Imago Dei, many of us have been marred. And we see this, unfortunately, on the news, whether for good or bad. We see events on headlines and newspapers. We see, uh, we see this in, in our social media feeds. We see this in people's stories and lived experiences. What we know is that racism uh, is still real and alive today. In fact, 2020 was coined as the year of racial reckoning. Not that we discovered racism for the first time, but it was more exposed in many ways. They also say that summer of 2020 was the biggest civil rights movement to date, and that includes over the movement in 1960s. We know that racism is still alive and real today. And technically, by definition, racism is the belief that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. And that's the definition by Merriam-Webster. And if we take that, we can say that theologically, that racism and the Imago Dei stand in opposition to one another. Racism and the Imago Dei are mutually exclusive. And now the danger of racism is this, especially in the Pacific Northwest, the liberal, the progressive, the enlightened, the highly educated communities that we live in. It almost feels like racism uh, doesn't exist or it's, it's very minimum or at the back burner uh, because we don't see the overt racism that we hear about in the news. We don't, we don't see the, or, or believe the things that happen around racism only happens in the South or, or the Midwest. It doesn't happen in the Northwest. 
And so the danger of racism is the fact that we feel like it doesn't exist because we don't see it with our own eyes. We don't hear racial slurs. We don't see people walking around in white robes and white hoods. We don't see in our own neighborhoods uh, racial violence and terror. And, and I would say I'm thankful for that. I, for the most of us, we don't necessarily witness that. And I'm thankful for that. But there are other ways that racism seeps into our lives and it's much more subtle than that. It's much more insidious than the overt racism we might read about on TV. And this kind of racism exists in two different ways. I would say on an individual level, which is more relational, more personal, and then a more systemic level, which is saying that racism exists as part of a system bigger than of ourselves. And so when we talk about that, I, I would say this, that the first way, the, the individual way, there's a few examples of how that manifests. And, and the first way is this, and maybe you've heard of this term before, it's the word microaggression. And I love how Jamar Tisby, who we've read together as a church, how he defines microaggressions. He says this, microaggression is racism by a thousand cuts. A paper cut is small, but painful. Microaggressions are sort of everyday reminders that you are different, other, marginalized, less than. And, and this is an important part, many times unintentional. And maybe you've heard this before, or maybe if you have experienced this kind of microaggression before, you can resonate with even my own experiences around stereotypes, around jokes. If I got a nickel for every time someone said, Prentice, why'd you make such a big deal out of that racist comment? It was just a joke. Many of us have heard that before. One writer, I love it, puts it this way. He gives examples. He says, an Asian American student is complimented by a professor for speaking perfect English but it's actually his first language. A black man notices that a white woman flinches and clutches her bag as she sees him in the elevator she's about to enter. And it becomes a painful reminder to him of racial stereotypes. A woman speaks up in an important meeting, but she can barely get a word out without being interrupted by a male colleague. Microaggressions is one subtle and insidious ways that we see racism play out, even here in our own lives. Second is, is this, not only the microaggressions in our personal lives, but even, that we, even the ones that we see on TV. Anybody here, and you can raise your hand if you want to, anybody here see the latest movie, the Barbie movie? Okay, many of us, we have, or many of us are lying, or many of us have no interest. I don't know what it is. Uh, but I will say, okay, I admit, I never, I haven't seen it yet either. My wife watched it uh, with, at that point, our one-month-old daughter. 
was in a little carrier and then went to the Barbie movie. And now, the reason why I bring that up is because though I don't know much about this Barbie movie, I do know that one of the characters, a Ken doll, if you will, is an Asian American actor who plays Ken. And if I'm talking about microaggressions, I see this even in Hollywood and in the media. And I'm looking at that guy and I'm saying, well, wait a minute. We have an Asian American male actor who's not a martial artist, not a kung fu teacher, not some kind of you know, crazy stunt devil. Like, he plays a normal character in a movie. Many of us may not be attuned to what's happening, but we see microaggressions happening in all facets of our lives. Next, not only do we have microaggressions, but we have a human condition. And the human condition is this, and I experienced this myself, is that we all idolize the familiar. There's a human condition that we idolize the familiar. And if we're not careful, it can oftentimes lead to racist tendencies. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we surround ourselves with our own echo chambers, people that look like us, people that speak the same language as us, people that eat the same foods as us, people that vote the same as us, people that only believe in the things as us. We become so comfortable with what is familiar that we end up idolizing it. And the danger of idolizing what is familiar is that we miss out on what the world is teaching us and what God is trying to teach us through others. Not only that, there's a danger of us in our own echo chambers to believe that our way is the right way. And if our way is the right way, then their way is the wrong way. That our way in our echo chambers is the best way. And if our ways are the best ways, then their ways are the worst ways. You see, when we start to idolize what is familiar, we end up putting ourselves on a pedestal, our entire echo chamber, and start excluding others or deem them as less off or villains at worst. We end up developing an elitist attitude in our own echo chambers. And we've seen this, especially in the last few years, in this extremely polarizing and divisive time. People latching onto their echo chambers or tribes, making themselves a hero, and I do this, and villainizing the other. And the third way is this. Not only is there microaggressions, not only do we idolize the familiar, but we just genuinely lack empathy. We live in a world where we have lost our ability to empathize, but we've gotten so much better in our ability to be judgmental. And I love what the psychologist and author Brene Brown says. She says, it is impossible. It is impossible for you to hate somebody up close. But oftentimes, because of our own echo chambers, we're afraid to be up close with someone that may look or seem different than ourselves. 
And so these microaggressions, this idolatry towards familiarity, this lack of empathy, these are all individual ways that if we're not careful, can seep into racist tendencies. Whether we know it or not, I experience this myself. And not only is there this individual way, but there's also this systemic way. And, and before I even unpack this, and I'll unpack this briefly, I had a conversation with my wife, like, I'm at a new church, I'm preaching my first sermon, should I go here? And, and after lots of prayer and thoughts, and just wrestling with what it means to be a faithful steward of the pulpit, I just felt like it would be an injustice if I only talked about the individual and didn't talk about the systemic aspect. And a big part of our systemic aspect of racism is this term that might be triggering, but I want you to hang with me for a second. But it's this term called whiteness. And whiteness has very little to do with a person. Yeah, it, it can be offensive. Whiteness has very little to do with a skin color even. Whiteness is not even about a people group or a person. It's about an ideology. It's about a technology that was built in order to create this hierarchy that we see was a definition of racism. Again, I'm not speaking towards a people group. I'm speaking towards an ideology that has been formed that creates a level of hierarchy that we must be aware of. And we've seen this play out in our world. We've seen slavery. That was systemic. Jim Crow laws. That's systemic. Redlining, even in our own cities until the 1970s. That's systemic. Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s, systemic. Internment camps, policies, mass incarceration, systemic. Now you can even look up these videos, but there's uh, uh, several videos of psychiatrists doing experiments with little boys and little girls. And they would have five or six dolls. There's a white doll and a doll that gets a little darker and a little darker and a little darker. And then at the very end, a black doll. And the psychiatrist in this experiment would tell the, tell the boys and girls all different ethnicities, white and black and Asian. They would ask them, what doll's the prettiest? What doll is going to be the most successful? What doll is the coolest? And without fail, every one of those little children went to the whitest doll and said this one. Now, where did they learn that from? Maybe their families or parents, maybe. Or is there something bigger that we're missing? Is there a bigger message that is seeping into our ideologies that's telling us that one group is better than the other? And through the prophet Jeremiah, God gives us a vision of what it's supposed to be like. And it's a proper understanding of the imago Dei. 
And this proper understanding of the Imago Dei envisions a multi-ethnic family of God that leaves no room for racism. Now I want to give a quick, quick, very brief backdrop of Jeremiah. And the first thing is this, Jeremiah was a prophet. And I know what some of you are thinking. No, he was a bullfrog. No, Jeremiah, the one that I'm talking about, was a prophet. And like many prophets, he was called by God to speak out against the disobedience of Israel. From book after book after book, Israel was disobedient and unfaithful, unjust, greedy, selfish, insular. And God says, if you're not careful, you're going to be punished by being put into exile into Babylon. That was Jeremiah's message. And by, Jer- by Jeremiah chapter 29, that exact thing actually happened. The Jews from Israel, well, to be exact, the southern kingdom of Judah, were exiled to Babylon. And so Jeremiah was a prophet, number one. Number two, Jeremiah writes this letter that while they are in exile, here is how you should live. Yes, you were disobedient. You were unfaithful. Now as a punishment, you were going to Babylon. And Jeremiah writes this letter saying, while you're in Babylon, here are some really helpful instructions in where you should live and how you should be hopeful. And third, the purpose of this letter that Jeremiah wrote was to give instruction and hope. And the first instruction was this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. In other words, Jeremiah's message was be present. Be present. There was this lie that we see in verse 9 and 10 that there was these false prophets saying, hey, hey, Jewish people that that were exiled into Babylon, don't worry, you're going to be out of there in no time. And Jeremiah is saying, that is a lie. Don't believe that lie. As a matter of fact, here's what you should do. You should settle in, build houses, eat what they produce. In other words, get uncomfortable and surround yourselves and get to know the neighborhood, the people around you. Yes, it'll be different, especially understanding that those that were exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon were the skilled workers. Most of them were the elites, the creme de la creme, something that the Babylonians thought they had to offer, they would bring them over. If they didn't have anything to offer, they would keep them there. And in this space with people that are so different from you, I want you to settle in and create a home amongst even the Babylonians. And that's an application for all of us, wherever God has you. Now, be fully present. No matter how different people are around you, God is saying be present in your classes, at work, in your living situation, in your neighborhoods. Be fully present. Number two, in verse six, it says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. In other words, build genuine relationships. Build genuine relationships. Listen to stories, branch out. And guess what? As you go into this new place, as you be present, as you enter into a place where there's different people and you create genuine relationships, it's going to be messy. 
It's going to be messy. And the calling in Jeremiah is to lean in because here's the deal. Conflict and messiness becomes the pathway to transformation and growth. I remember several years ago, there was an older gentleman that came up to me and said, uh, Prentice, and we were talking, and he referred to me as Oriental. And, and I remember thinking, I have two choices here. Number one, I can just storm off and be angry. Number two, I can confront him out of anger. But I thought that the way of Jesus, there's actually a third way, and the third way is to enter into the messiness. So I said, sir, I just want you to know that the word oriental is no longer appropriate. You can call me Korean or Asian American. And he felt so bad. He apologized over and over again. And I said, that's okay. I'm so glad you're open to listening. There's a relationship that formed through the messiness because we were committed to going through with it together. And so as we settle in, as we become present, may we build genuine relationships because we know that even in the mess, growth and transformation will occur on the other side. And I love this last verse that we'll talk about. It says, Be, but, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. I love this. The idea is be present, build genuine relationships, and practice radical generosity wherever you are. I would love, I love these two words. It says, seek the welfare. Seek is this Hebrew word, darash. And it's not just seek or look for. It's this idea of relentlessly, diligently searching for something. And then it says welfare, which is translated into peace. But the peace that's in the Hebrew is the word shalom. So if we put that into a sentence, it says search diligently for, for the other people's well-being, for their shalom. And shalom isn't just a peace that's absent of, of conflict. Shalom is this harmony inside and out, head to toe. A holistic type of, uh, of peace and wholeness that God has for us. Our jobs, wherever we are, is to be present, build genuine relationships. And in those genuine relationships is to practice radical generosity by pursuing so diligently the shalom of others. And as we pursue the shalom of others, we experience shalom Ourselves, Dr. King says it this way, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Shalom is intertwined in all of us. And then it says this in Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of us are familiar with this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And I would argue it would be absolutely irresponsible for us to read that one verse apart from verse 1 through 10. The plans that God has for us is to prosper us, not to harm us. That happens when we enter and be present, when we practice 
radical generosity, when we build genuine relationships, we become like Jesus. I love in John chapter 1, verse 14, this is the message version. Eugene Peterson says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In other words, Jesus moves in to the neighborhood. He leaves heaven to come into this world, to live, to die, and to be resurrected on the third day, to reconcile himself to us in order that we may live as a multi-ethnic family of God. And this is joyful news. And as I invite the worship team back up, and as we close, there's two questions I want us to ponder. And the first question is this. Where is your Babylon? Where are the places that God has you that might make you feel uncomfortable, that might make you want to kind of be insular, kind of keep to yourself in your own bubbles? Where is your Babylon? And as you answer that question, what about the question, how will you be a peacemaker in that Babylon? How will you bring about shalom, the, the, the welfare of others in that space? Let's pray. God, thank you that you have called us into a hard, messy work of reconciliation. Because the result of that is us living the way you've called us to live as a diverse and beautiful multi-ethnic family centered around you and the cross. Forgive us for the moments that we've failed. Forgive us for the moments that we've hurt others. And may we seek you for wisdom and guidance on how to be fully present right where you have us. on how to practice radical generosity, how to build genuine relationships. And we'll thank you for that. In name we pray, amen and amen.